Good morning, church. Take a moment again to thank the Higgins family for our, their ministry to us this morning. Thank you very much, Higgins, for leading us and um, ministering to us uh, this way this morning. We are in a new month. I hope you enjoyed your extra day of uh, 2020 yesterday because it's a leap year. And so yesterday was February 29th. And uh, as we stand here or sit here, it's March 1st today and we have a new memory verse that we will be memorizing this month and it is in relation to our global outreach conference which is coming up very soon. So it'll be on the screen today. Let's say it together. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. To every nation and tribe and language and people. Revelation 14, 6. Wonderful. I want to remind you that Wednesday nights at Calvary Monument continues, sorry, continues to be a happening place. I had tried to estimate the other day about the number of volunteers that we have active here on a Wednesday night. And on any given Wednesday night, we have between 40 and 60 volunteers active here at Calvary Monument in all different aspects of ministry here. In Awana, in our children, uh, working with them in our youth ministry through our prayer gathering that meets every Wednesday night and it just continues to be uh, a wonderful place of ministry here every Wednesday night. would encourage you to come and participate with us. Our quizzers are at Weaverland Mennonite today if you have the opportunity to go and support them. And then I finally wanted to give you a hello uh, from the boys. It's been a while since I showed a picture on Sunday morning. In fact, today was probably the first day that they saw uh, what church actually looks like on a Sunday morning from the parking lot. As Sheila brought the bio kids today and dropped them off, and the boys got to observe the number of cars and people coming into the uh, sanctuary here at the church. And I just want to remind you when I show you these pictures and you see these smiling faces that these represent the best moments of our week. Um, this is not all how every week, uh, every moment of every week is. In fact, we have uh, entire days that are not looking like this. Uh, but every once in a while, we snap a picture that uh, shows the joy that we have in the difficult days as well. And so this is one of those pictures. Again, thank you for your prayers. Uh, appreciate your support. The cards, the meals, the encouragement, all are just carrying us uh, through this season. Thank you very much. We're continuing to work through the book of John as a congregation, and I was told this week that we're in our 50th sermon today from the book of John. So that was very exciting to me, and we are concluding John chapter 13 today, and really this is the practical love gospel in the gospel of John. John chapter 13, we've witnessed together Jesus demonstrating love, we encountered that the love of Jesus was betrayed, and today we're going to find Jesus giving a new command related to love. And Jesus is going to speak of his glory. He's going to talk about the Father's glory. He's going to prepare the disciples for the road that was lying before them. And he's going to call them to break away from the old and follow him in something new. There is a new command, a new way. Jesus has demonstrated it. Now he's going to call all of his disciples to follow in it. 
And we, we have to be careful as we approach this text today not to miss the enormous implications that stand behind this text for the church. And as we explore the passage today, we might find that often we are prone to wonder more in the direction and example of Peter than the direction and example of Jesus. And so today we're going to endeavor to answer these two gigantic questions. The first question is this, what is the new command that Jesus gives to his disciples? And second, what does it look like to live out that new command in our daily lives? We're in John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38 today. I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn there. John 13, verses 31 to 38. Before we enter into his word, let's take a moment and pray. Father, your word is like a morsel of our favorite food that never runs out. Ezekiel says it's like a fire, a fire pent up in our bones, that he was weary of holding it in. And Lord, today we are weary of holding the truths contained in these verses in. And we gather together as a corporate body, and this is one of the wonderful works of your spirit in our lives in every given week that we gather around your word your true reliable powerful word and we open our hearts and open our minds and your spirit works applying the truths of this passage and other passages that we study together to our lives we're so thankful for your word father We open these pages today and we see that there's something new that you're calling us to. There's something new that you're uniting us around. We pray, Father, that our ears would be attentive to it, that our hearts would be motivated by it, and that you would use it to teach us how we might grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Glory abounding 
at the beginning of this passage. Jesus uses some form of the word glory five times in these two verses. And we are now at the point in John's gospel where the glory of Jesus and the glory of the Father are mingled together in full and magnificent display. The Father is immensely pleased and will be wholly satisfied with the work of His servant. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 3, And He said to me, You are My servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And it's interesting, at the beginning of our text, we're, we're reminded that He waits until Judas goes out. Judas will have no part of this proclamation of Jesus' glory. Satan will have no presence in the pronouncement of the glory of God. And despite Satan's best efforts, Jesus will be lifted up in full and radiant glory. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Only God is able to command such glory in the face of betrayal and the face of death. And as the Son of Man, Jesus is fully accomplishing with absolute perfection and precision the salvation purposes and mandate that He was given by His Father. And as the Son of God, He was pre-existent with God from the beginning, glorified as very God Himself. There's a beautiful passage in the book of Hebrews Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, that brings this glorification together in beautiful harmony. Verses 1 to 3a, we see the glory of the Son of God. Verses 3b to 4, we see the glory of the Son of Man. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The glory of the Son of God. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent then there's the glory of the Son of Man. Judas' betrayal is on full, on full swing now. And the day which Jesus had spoke of in John 9, that day we remember where He said we must work the works of Him Why it is day, that day is now drawing to an end. Night is upon us. And as Judas staggers and stumbles away into the night, we find the purpose for Jesus' descent almost suddenly in this gospel narrative coming slowly towards a culmination on the cross. Here and now, church, we are to anticipate Jesus' ascension. And why God was glorified in Jesus coming down, He will also be glorified as Jesus is lifted up. And in between the here and now and His ascension, what lies ahead for Jesus are the horrors of the cross. And soon Jesus will kneel in the Garden of Gethsemane and He will echo very words related to His glory. Listen to Jesus speak of His own glory. 
and the glory of the Father. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We are not to miss the reality that there was not one moment in the earthly ministry of Jesus where the glory of God was void. The glory that belongs to God, the glory that belongs to the Son, this is what gives the Son authority over all flesh to deliver eternal life to all that He was given. And it's the same authority that's going to stand behind this new command. There's a new command. And it's only a man of Jesus' nature and character that has the ability to give a new command. And having accomplished the work that God had given him to do, Jesus was moving now towards his final elevations. Elevations that were too lofty for any disciple to follow in. Jesus would be high and lifted up in more ways than one. And where he was going, no one else could go. Let's look at this new command in verses 33 to 35. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So a curious thought as we begin to look at these two verses, why is Jesus addressing his disciples as little children? What is going on here? Jesus does not frequently use his words, these words, little children. In fact, this is the only time where he refers to his 12 disciples as little children. What is he doing here? What's going on? These are the same words that would have been used by a rabbi who was relating to his most closest pupils. Today we use the word class pets. I like to use that word. These were Jesus' closest friends, closest companions, closest followers. And he's relating to them as a rabbi would have related to his most special students. They understand his words to mean such, but it's interesting to remember that in spite of this reality, in spite of these people being so close to him, being his closest companions, Mark chapter 4, Jesus said, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Friends, they were unable to follow where Jesus was going. Not yet. 
It was not their hour. Their time had not yet come. And just as Jesus had spoken earlier to the Jews, He's now speaking the same precious truths. John chapter 8, 21, as He was speaking to the Jews, He said, I am going away. You will seek Me. You will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And even further back in John chapter 7, uh, verse 33, it's echoed again. Church, the the terrors of death, the loneliness of the grave, the victory of life, and the glory of heaven were still on hold for the disciples of Jesus. So while they were waiting, while you're waiting, you cannot go where I'm going. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So while you're here on earth, while you are waiting, there's something I have for you to do. Something mightily important. Something that Jesus Himself had demonstrated. A new command. While you're here in this foreign place, this alien land, here is how you are to live. It's a final lesson, church, for His disciples. Jesus, the greatest rabbi, right here in John 13, what you see are the greatest rabbi's final lessons, final instructions to his group of followers, his closest followers, his disciples. Indeed, these are are his final words of instruction to the group as a whole in John's Gospel. And that the command that Jesus gives them here, it's new, but it echoes within its revelation as something we know that's grounded as a gift that was given to the people long, long ago. Now, for those of you that were here last week, remember we went scuba diving last week. I asked you to get your scuba gear out. We dove down. We're going mountain climbing this week, okay? Every week is an adventure in the Word of God. So I want you to get your mountain climbing equipment out. We're going to climb to the top of the mountain, and I want you to go back with me long ago to the Old Testament. When Moses had his mountain gear out, and he ascended to the top, of Mount Sinai. And what happened up there? What did God give him up there? It was a gift, a good and precious gift. It was a gift meant to preserve and to protect the people of God. It were words that were meant to communicate God's intentional, deliberate, gracious, and merciful love towards them. Do you remember what Moses received at the top of the mountain? What did he receive? The law. Right? And Moses descends from the mountain with these stone tablets that would forever unite and change who were the nomadic Hebraic people into what would eventually become a mighty nation of Israelites. And the commands that he was given are found in the law of God. The law is unpacked in four of the five books of the Torah in the Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And what does the law do? What what was the purpose of the law? What did it reveal to us? The Old Testament law. Two revelations. First, the law brings us to a realization that even though God is holy, completely holy and set apart, that a right relationship with Him is possible. Wow. Wow. 
A wonderful revelation. The faithfulness of God demonstrated in His love towards a people who at the time their hearts were far from Him. Second, and of equal importance, it exposes our inability to achieve that relationship on our own efforts. The law reveals our sinfulness. And it communicates to us that something or someone else is needed in order for us to have a right relationship with God. We cannot do it on our own efforts. A sacrifice. In the Old Testament, we see the blood of lambs, doves, livestock, produce, atoning for the sins of many, given by faith in God's covenant promises. So, what did the law intend to teach? If, if, if it reveals those truths to us, what did it intend to teach? And I think it's interesting, the Old Testament law was summed up in a daily mantra or saying that united the people of Israel around the intention and the purpose for the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. Many of us know this. It, it beautifully expresses two realities. Love of God and love of others. And check this out. This is wonderful. Verses 4 to 6, love of God. Verses 7 to 9, love of of others. Let's look at it together. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. Love of God, love of others coming. Teach them diligently to your children. Walk in them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. And we see this again beautifully revealed in the Ten Commandments. Many of us know those Ten Commandments by heart. But in the first four commands, we're informed how we should love God. And the next six inform us on how we should love others. And you take all ten together and we can conclude that we cannot rightly relate to God without rightly relating to one another. We have to be able to relate to one another, church. Now don't come off the mountain yet. Stay up on the mountain. But while you stay up there, let's jump back into the New Testament. There's a scene in the New Testament from Jesus' life in the book of Matthew. You remember this scene. There's a lawman, a lawyer, a man who was an expert in the law. And he came to Jesus and he had an interesting question for him. And we're met with this interesting juxtaposition. It's a beautiful thing. Here you have an expert in the law. Speaking to the very word through which the law was fulfilled. Take a look, Matthew chapter 22. Teacher, which is the greatest command in the law? Whew. If you ever saw a loaded question aimed right at Jesus, that's one right there. 
man, they, they would thought, we got him. No matter what he answers here, we got him. Can't just pick and choose. Which one is it, Jesus? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all, not some, not just the Torah, not just the Torah and the music books, all the law and the prophets. Everything depends on these two. He's giving a lesson to this lawyer. This is basic law 101. And it turns out that the expert in the law actually didn't know the law very well at all. The first command that Jesus shares with him in verses 37 and 38 comes from the passage that we just looked at in Deuteronomy. But the second part of Jesus' answer, we often overlook this reality. The second command that Jesus gives is also found in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, you want to take them. It's, it's a passage I couldn't put on the screen. Too many lines. But we want to go to Leviticus. Leviticus. Go to Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. The third book in the Old Testament. You want to turn here. It's really important to understand that Jesus is quoting the Old Testament in both the first and the second command that he gives to the lawyer here. Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19, starting in verse 9, and we're going to kind of read through quickly, and I'll skip over, but I'll let you know which verses we're hitting. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. What's the Lord talking about here? How we think about others. How we love others in our day-to-day walks. Some people were grape men, vineyard keepers. I don't know what you call them, winemakers. Some people were farmers. Here's how you honor the Lord in your day-to-day working. Look in verse 11. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. Don't swear by my name falsely. Isn't it amazing that swearing by Jesus' name falsely is found in the context of a passage that's related to how we love one another. When you take the Lord's name in vain, or when you swear by the name of the Lord falsely, you're not only offending the Lord, but the intention, according to the context here, is that you're offending your brother as well. I am the Lord. Verse 13. Do not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Pay the man. Don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Fear your God. Verse 15. Do no injustice in the court. Do not be partial to the poor. Defer to the great. All of these verses talking to us, building up all the way to verse 18. Go there. 
You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now consider what Jesus is doing here in his interactions with this lawyer. We have to realize that in this moment in the book of Matthew, Jesus is not giving anything new. What's he doing? He's summarizing the old. He's summarizing the old. So this is significant. In John chapter 13 when he says, there is something new that I'm about to give you. Remember church, one of Jesus' purposes for his earthly ministry was to prepare the disciples to help him build something. Jesus is preparing the soil for the foundation of a new community. One of whom he will be the cornerstone of. And this new community, they will be guided by a new commandment. And the new commandment that he's going to give is to form this new community's very identity. It's a singular commandment. It's not a book of laws like the Old Testament. It's a commandment that we're able to sum up in one simple phrase. Love one another. The command for the church is love. My name, my name starts with a C. I like C's. And as any good pastor, there's a lot of C's going on right here I'm going to read to you. But, but I thought about this this week, and I thought this is absolutely amazing. Have your pens and pencils ready. You should get six C's here. Six C's. Here's what we have. This is what's going on right here and right now in John chapter 13. We have Christ... The cornerstone, building his new community, the church, uniting them under a new covenant with a new commandment to guide them. Beautiful. This is what Jesus is doing right here in John chapter 13. Christ, the cornerstone, building a new community, the church, uniting them under a new covenant. That's guided by a new command. And this is the love that compelled the example of Christ. He was motivated to see God glorified. Love in the same manner. We are to love in the same manner that Jesus demonstrated to us. There is only one way, church, for us to glorify God. And that is for us to, be, to become defined as children of love with a nature of love. And therefore we unite around the vision to grow in this love. And we rely on the power of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this kind of growing love in our lives. We can't do it on our own strength. And we come to the realization that one of the realities of Jesus' life in His earthly ministry 
is that you will never find him giving responsibility to anybody. In fact, what he's doing is quite the opposite. He's going to all the religious leaders, to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, and he's tearing the responsibility away from them. Give it up! He's replacing it with something that's greater. A heart that's tuned towards love. And being loving and living motivated by this love in all things will make us far more responsible than our responsibly guided efforts ever could. The old commands, they they served their purpose. Jesus fulfilled them perfectly. The new community that Jesus was establishing was a community where there is great freedom within the confines of love, love as defined by Jesus. Love as Jesus models, as He describes. It should be the kind of love that defines and describes and informs and motivates our behaviors. And this doesn't mean that we do away with the Old Testament commands. I've heard that before. Maybe some of you have heard that before. That's not right. We don't just discard the old law as if it were nothing and cast it aside. Fulfillment of the old doesn't make it irrelevant. We have to grab hold of that reality. It simply means this, that as the church, we are to relate to the old commands in light of the new. So you take the new command, love, and you lay it over top of the old commands as a filter. And it's that new command that guides and motivates us towards proper application and understanding of the old. For the church, love must lead. Love comes first. As you leave today, church, you'll see it above the doors of our own sanctuary, our corporate mission. It's on display, and the order of the words are by intention, not by accident. Look again at verse 34. So enormous, we have to read it again. A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The master, the king, he's stooping down to serve his servants, disciples, brothers, friends. He's healing the sick. He's forgiving sinners. He's making the lame walk, causing the blind to see. And isn't it interesting that as he's doing this, he's being accused of breaking so many of the old commands. All the while, what he's really doing is demonstrating for us how to live in the light of the new command that he's given. So many times, it's it's interesting throughout Jesus' ministry, you can go back through all the Gospels and you can almost write the questions, but so many times he's giving the pious religious leaders these questions and these paradigms that are leaving them quaking in their boots. They have no idea how to respond to what Jesus is saying. Think of some of the questions. What if following the Sabbath, according to your traditions, actually makes you break the law? What if following the law means that you need to break from your Sabbath traditions? 
hey, I have an idea. Let's destroy the temple and we'll raise it up again even better in three days. What if we just clear all the temple, clear it out of all the money changers, all the merchants, and just focus on prayer? Imagine this. What if one could worship anywhere instead of just in the temple? What would it look like if only those who were without sin pronounced condemnation? What if your neighbor is whoever God places in your pathway, regardless of their affiliations or backgrounds? What might it look like to go the extra mile for someone? When attacked, mocked, criticized for your beliefs, why not just turn the other cheek? Jesus has demonstrated how we are to love over and over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus is never less than loving. But he is often loving in a manner that was very uncommon and even sometimes in his day considered antagonistic. Turning water into wine, speaking to a Samaritan woman. Don't do that. Hanging with the tax collectors, healing Gentiles. Why would you heal them? Forgiving prostitutes. Silent before his accusers. Forgiving the perpetrators behind his crucifixion. Restoring the denier, Peter. In the face of hatred, in the face of bitterness, in the face of scandal, lies, deceit, betrayal, imprisonment, false trials, beatings, and even death, Jesus proves His love never fails. Never fails. And it's this kind of example that should compel us to love others in the same manner He did. And when we live in this command, and when we walk in this command, something very interesting happens. It's going to tell us in verse 35. What happens? People take notice. Jesus is going to commission his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But how will people know who the true disciples of Jesus are? Or who the true disciples of Jesus aren't? How does anyone know for that matter? How do we know just sitting here today? Who's a true believer in Jesus and who's not? Verse 35. By this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Three times in verses 34 and 35, Jesus repeats the phrase, love one another. And the disciples, it's amazing what they do with this command. We know, we sit here, we should be excited. We read the rest of the New Testament, we see this. The disciples, they take this command and they run it through the presses. It's everywhere in the New Testament. We can't get away from it. In all of the epistles, in all of the letters that follow in the New Testament. Now, if I could be up here all day, believe me, I would love to. 
We could go in and we could really nail down all of these verses and chapters and places where they do it, but I thought we had time for about three today, okay? 1 Corinthians 13, we know this one. Paul understood the new command was love. There's a whole chapter in 1 Corinthians. Love. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, what does he say? I am nothing. I think Paul was bought in, all in, on this new command. 1 John, we shouldn't be surprised, right? Written by the gospel writer. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. How do we know that a person has come to be defined as a child of love with the nature of love? Inspect the fruit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love. love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Didn't Jesus demonstrate that when He healed a man on the Sabbath? And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Church, our corporate testimony is most magnifying and most glorifying to God when our hearts are directed and tuned in love towards one another. The light of Christ is shined most brightly in the corporate obedience or actions of a church that is compelled by Christ and motivated by love. How do we shine the light of, a gospel, of the gospel in the dark, dark world that we live in today? How do we shine the light of the truth of the gospel into the darkest corners where people are battling with issues related to their identity, whether they're even a male or a female? What light shines bright enough into those dark spaces? The light of Christ. The light of love. There's a better way, friends. Jesus showed it. He demonstrated it. He modeled it. A church, a people who live and breathe out love, not even aware that they're doing it. Not a duty. Not an obligation. But a love that flows from joy and opportunity. We actually have a glimpse of this, friends, in the New Testament. It's in the book of Matthew. A glimpse of the heart's of those who are truly motivated by this kind of love. There's a passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus is separating the sheep and the goats. Many of us are familiar with this passage. And the goats Jesus has previously alluded to in Matthew chapter 7, they were the people, they came and they said, Lord, we cast out demons. Lord, look at all these things we did for you. We prophesied. We preached. Go away. I never knew you. And then to those on his right, what does he say? 
I was hungry. You fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was naked. You clothed me. I was sick. You visited me. I was in prison. You came. And isn't their response so telling of their heart and their true motivation? What do they say? When? When did we do these things? It was their joy, church. They were acting as their nature. Children of love with a nature of love. Behaving according to the new nature which had been given to them by our Savior, Jesus Christ. The sheep were operating as they were compelled by Christ's example. The law being love. And it flows from within us naturally as the Spirit works within us towards our sanctification. Children of love, with a nature of love, Jesus says, come. Come. And so you're left at the end of Matthew 25 with these two groups. One group who by their own efforts believes that they're achieving righteousness. And one group who by the power of Christ at work within them is living by faith, led by love, and it's credited to them. Credited to them as righteousness. And Jesus, He knew, church, He knew the propensity for us to try to fulfill this command on our own efforts. He knew the propensity would be strong. And John, we know He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's no mistake at all, that he pens the stark and telling example of what our initial response to this command might sound like. And not surprisingly, who does it come from? Peter. Peter. Poor execution here, church. Verse 36. Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow, but you'll follow afterwards. And Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Wow. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, remember, you didn't come off the mountain yet, did you? I didn't, we, didn't, we didn't do that. We're still up on Mount Sinai. We should be, okay? We left Mount Sinai with Moses receiving the commands from God. And now we're all going to come back down the mountain with Moses. And what is going on at the foot of the mountain? Woo! Madness! I mean, it's, it's wild. Man has created this calf and they're trying so hard by their own efforts and own ability to do what? Please God. And this is the narrative, church, throughout the Bible. The Lord has a way that's right for man, and man always goes after what's right in his own eyes. Adam, Babel, Jacob. We could go on and on and on. And here we are again. Simon Peter... I can do it. I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. I'll lay down my life for you. The problem, church, is that the personal pronouns are all mixed up. 
Better if he would have said, whatever you say, Lord, only you can do it, Jesus. I can't follow you. You lead. Thank you for being willing to lay down your life for me. I am weak. You are strong. You guide me. You direct me. You lead me. Duty-driven Peter. What he says sounds a lot like sacrifice to me. 1 Samuel. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen, oh Peter, oh myself, oh Chris, listen, listen. But Romans 12 says to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It does, yes, but then the rest of the chapter tells us what that sacrifice looks like. And it looks like obedience to the new command that Jesus has given. Love one another. When we obey the new command of loving one another, it looks like we're offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. And this we do out of overflowing joy in view of God's immeasurable mercies. Jesus says in John chapter 15, Greater love has no one than this, that someone might lay down his life for his friends. And Peter's response, it's anticipating Jesus' ultimate definition, what this kind of love looks like, but his execution is a reminder that it's not a kind of love that we can accomplish on our own strengths or efforts. It's not a daily checklist. It's more than a wishy-washy feeling. Love that honors God is an orientation of the heart that unveils itself in the patterns of our daily lives. It drives the true seat of our motivations. It informs and it guides our behaviors. And it's directed by the Spirit. It's a supernatural kind of love that we can't produce on our own. God has to do it through us. Because He calls us to love, church, regardless of how we feel. Whew, that's been a mouthful for me in the past eight weeks. I don't always feel like loving these two little guys. Just being transparent on a Sunday morning with you. But that's what's supernatural. How do I do this? I know I'm not doing it. I can tell you that. Give God the glory. He's given me the strength. He's given me the energy, the patience. I've never been this patient my entire life. My bio children would amen that in a heartbeat. Nine weeks, I think I've flown off the handle one time. That is Jesus. That is Jesus. Because I fail every day to live this in my life. Every day, this kind of love. There's fear that gets in the way. There's pride. There's anger. There's pain. There's bitterness. There's brokenness. Sometimes heartache, anxiety, worry. Roadblocks that keep me from loving the way that Jesus has called me to love. I need Him to do it through me. I need Him to do it for me. And whenever I try to overcome those roadblocks by my own efforts, oh, I'm going to try really hard today to love these guys. Yes, that's usually the time where a few minutes later I'm flying off the handle. Sure, Lord, I will follow you. Peter would have loved to be lifted up, to be elevated. We all enjoy receiving glory that doesn't belong to us. 
But Peter would not have wanted to be lifted up in the same manner that Jesus was about to be lifted up. Peter cannot follow Jesus because only Jesus can receive the glory that was held up within his death and resurrection. And in this moment, Peter might look so spiritual before his fellow disciples. I'll lay down my life for you. I'll do go wherever you're going. Sounds so spiritual. But Jesus is quick to rebuke him. Will you lay down your life for me? If we try to do these things, church, on our own strengths and our own efforts, we will deny him. The example of Peter will become true in our own lives. And the question today might be, what if we change the order of the personal pronouns? Instead of thinking so much about all we're doing for God, Lord, you laid down your life for me. Help me to lay down my lives for others. Help me to love the people you're placing in my pathways tomorrow, the next day, and the next day in the way that you loved me. You tell me where you want me to go. You guide me in the paths of righteousness. Help me follow and obey you, Lord. I can't do it on my own strength. It's too hard. I need you. Help me to live in a way that honors you. Teach me, Jesus, how I can love others when love is the furthest thing from how I feel. It's in these phrases, in these words and understandings that we recognize our great need for Jesus. Every moment of every day. He did the work, church. He sent His Spirit to help us accomplish what He's given us to do. He gets the glory. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. And we're going to celebrate today. Our elders are going to come towards the front and we're going to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive communion today. And what a wonderful Sunday to reflect on the truth of Jesus' love and how He demonstrated this love to us. That you would give your own life for us. That shortly before you were betrayed, you were denied, shortly before you were put on a cross, that you would stoop down and wash your own disciples' feet, including your betrayer. Lord, I'm sure if I feel this way, that many in our congregation feel that there are days we feel unworthy to receive the kind of love that you've demonstrated to us. Yet, because of your son Jesus, you count us worthy. Because he has given his life for us and demonstrated this kind of love. We too get to receive, walk in, and experience the freedom and the unconditional love that comes from you. Lord, as we reflect on the sacrifices of your son on the cross today, might our hearts be satisfied, might we be thankful. And might we remember the great love that you've demonstrated to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.